Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. We are making our way through the Catechism. We are currently in Part 1, which, recall, focuses on the Creed, and we're now in Section 2, where we go line by line through the Apostles' Creed. Today we'll read Article 4, entitled, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So, what led to that? We'll talk a little bit about the Pharisees, a Jewish sect of Jesus' time, And then this will lead us to a discussion of popular author C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma. So I'm sure you've heard of a dilemma or a decision between two choices. A trilemma, as you can imagine, is a decision among three choices. So again, today's reading selection focuses on the Pharisees, a sect of Judaism, which came into existence as a class around the 3rd century B.C., so about 300 years before Jesus was born. You may be familiar with the Jewish diaspora, uh, also known as the exile of the Jews from Israel. And in, in broad strokes, there were two big exiles. So the first was in the 8th century B.C., about 800 years before Jesus was born. This was known as the Assyrian exile. So it was the expulsion of the Jewish people from Israel by uh, a series of Assyrian leaders. And then a couple hundred years later in the 6th century BC, so about 600 years before Jesus was born, uh, this exile was known as the Babylonian captivity. So portions of the Jewish people were deported from Israel. This diaspora or dispersion of the Jewish people existed for several centuries And while they were living, while the Jews were living among other nations, religions, practices, and ways of life, there was a group of Jews who began to separate themselves from what they considered were their heathen neighbors. So um, I did a little research on Catholic.com, which I highly recommend. Uh, It's put out by Catholic Answers. And um, they have a number of articles written by their staff, and they also feature articles from uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia. So this comes from an article in the Catholic Encyclopedia, which describes the Pharisees as a a Jewish sect who um, had a growing sense of superiority to the heathen and idolatrous nations among whom their lot was cast. And this came to be one of their main characteristics, so the sense of of superiority as they separated themselves from um, these other nations, these other ways of life. So they insistently taught others to separate themselves from their heathen neighbors, and the more zealous ones drew themselves apart, calling themselves the pious ones, quote-unquote. They eventually became a distinct class referred to as the Pharisees, meaning those who separated themselves. And during times of persecution, which unfortunately happened over and over again, they became rigid defenders of the Jewish religion and traditions, even to the point of suffering martyrdom. So because of this heroic devotedness to Judaism, to their faith, to their traditions, they became, as you can imagine, very influential over uh, the Jewish people. And over time, they became sources of authority, even over the priestly class. 
So fast forward a couple centuries, and by the time of Christ, the Pharisees were powerful and prestigious, and they had also become arrogant and conceited. So Christ speaks against them openly. He says to observe what they teach, but do not follow their personal example. Jesus says to the people in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to move them. All their works are performed to be seen. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor in synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, and the salutation rabbi. As for you, do not be called rabbi. You have but one teacher, and you are all brothers. In case people didn't completely get Jesus' point, he steps it up a little bit later in the chapter, about five verses later, verses 13 through 36, where he says over and over again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. He calls them, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind ones. And then my personal favorite And by favorite, I mean, I hope Jesus never, ever, ever says this to me. He says to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of filth. Yikes. Think of some of the things we say to each other in person and and online. I don't think it's um, crafted as, as beautifully, could we say, as, as distinctly as, uh, vividly as you whitewash tombs full of dead man's dead man's bones and every kind of filth yikes and then he goes on to to call them serpents you brood of vipers so with that background in mind uh, where the pharisees came from how they were formed as a a class how they were respected and then eventually became so arrogant and conceited that in the time of jesus They're being called whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones and every kind of filth. We turn to today's reading selection, which discusses some of the main reasons which led the Pharisees to take issue with Jesus. So today's reading selection from the Catechism outlines uh, three things, Jesus and the law, Jesus and the temple, and then Jesus and Israel's faith in the one God and Savior. So first, Jesus and the law. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, uh, quoted in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 577, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. A couple of paragraphs later, Catechism of the Catholic Church 579 goes on to say, This principle of integral observance of the law, not only in letter but in spirit, was dear to the Pharisees. By giving Israel this principle, they had led many Jews of Jesus' time to an extreme religious zeal. This zeal, were it not to lapse into hypocritical casuistry, could only prepare the people for the unprecedented intervention of God through the perfect fulfillment of the law by the only righteous one in place of all sinners. 
Paragraph 581 goes on to say, the Jewish people and their spiritual leaders viewed Jesus as a rabbi. He often argued within the framework of rabbinical interpretation of the law. Yet Jesus could not help but offend the teachers of the law, for he was not content to propose his interpretation alongside theirs, but taught the people as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Paragraph 582 then concludes by saying, In presenting with divine authority the definitive interpretation of the law, Jesus found himself confronted by certain teachers of the law who did not accept his interpretation of the law, guaranteed though it was by the divine signs that accompanied it. So Jesus was not one interpretation among others, but his was the definitive interpretation, and he is the definitive interpreter. Secondly, Jesus in the temple. After having shown great respect for the temple, so recall Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby. He's found around the age of 12 by Mary and St. Joseph teaching in the temple. Um, as an adult, he drives out the money changers, those who are taking advantage of the temple to make money. Um, he goes on to associate himself with the temple by presenting himself as God's definitive dwelling place among men. So the Jews believed that the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. Um, Jesus comes and says, I am where the presence of God dwells. And in fact, I am God himself. So you can imagine why the Pharisees would take issue with that. Thirdly and finally, uh, the Catechism discusses Jesus and Israel's faith in the one God and Savior. Paragraph 587 says, If the law and the Jerusalem temple could be occasions of opposition to Jesus by Israel's religious authorities, his role in the redemption of sins, the divine work par excellence was the true stumbling block for them. So if the Pharisees took issue with Jesus' interpretation of the law, with his association of himself with the Jerusalem temple, imagine how they reacted to him claiming to be able to forgive sins and associating himself with the one and only God. He not only ate with tax collectors and sinners whom the Pharisees despised and from whom they separated themselves, but he went on to forgive their sins. Paragraph 589 says, But it was most especially by forgiving sins that Jesus placed the religious authorities of Israel on the horns of a dilemma. Were they not entitled to demand and consternation who can forgive sins but God alone? By forgiving sins, Jesus either is blaspheming as a man who made himself God's equal or is speaking the truth, and his person really does make present and reveal God's name. So I like how the catechism says, basically, can you kind of understand um, why the Pharisees might take issue with Jesus forgiving sins and very blatantly associating himself with God, claiming to be God, who is the only one who can forgive our sins? This brings us to C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma, where he talks about a decision among three things. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus Christ, if you look at his life and teaching, can only be three things and nothing else. He is either the Lord, whom he claims to be, a lunatic, or a liar. So think of uh, our modern culture where a lot of people will say, Jesus wasn't necessarily God, but he was, you know, a nice guy. For some reason, he's often associated with hippies, I think, because of the long hair and sandals. Um, growing up, my parents had this beautiful painting of, of Jesus in our stairwell that we referred to as, as surfer Jesus, you know, kind of like the, the flowing locks, the really kind eyes, the suntanned face. 
Um, some people say he was a wise teacher, he was an influential guru, and kind of put him on the level of, say, a Buddha or a Gandhi. C.S. Lewis says, to hell with that. He says there are three and only three things that Jesus could have been if you look at what he said and did and taught. He says that either Jesus Christ was the Lord, exactly who he claimed to be, not only performing miracles, spouting wise teachings, but forgiving people's sins that only God can do. If he was not the Lord, then he was either a lunatic, completely crazy, who thought that he was God and could forgive sins and perform miracles, or he was an incredible liar, a liar so good such that 2,000 years later, millions and millions and millions, billions of people have followed and still ascribe to his teachings, still believe that he is the Lord. Lewis says those are the only three options. We can't say he's a nice guy or just a wise teacher or an influential guru. I used to teach this to my classes, and I would say, guys, imagine I came into the classroom and I started signing you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, go now, your sins are forgiven. You would not look at me and say, wow, Mrs. Doherty is just such a nice woman, such a kind soul, such an influential teacher, a guru of our times. You would say, this woman is crazy. She thinks she can forgive our sins. She's placing herself on the same level as God. Or she has some weird shtick going on up there. She's lying to us because she wants us to do or, or believe something. So again, Lewis says, ultimately, we have to pick one of those three things. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was? Was he the Lord? Or was he crazy, he thought he was the Lord, or an incredible liar, such that many have been caught up in his teachings and continue to follow and believe in him? This week, let's consider, do I believe, is he Lord, a lunatic, or a liar? We can't pick and choose among his teachings, so he himself says, you're either with me or against me. You're either with me or against me. It's all or nothing. You believe what I say and teach and follow what I do, or you don't. And that's fine. I give you free will. It's up to you to choose. But what we believe is that he offers us this truth so that we too can participate in his divine life and be happy not just in the next life, but in this life as well. So as you think about the teachings of Jesus... Um, if there happens to be a teaching that you struggle with, something that Jesus said or did or taught, something that the church continues to teach today, um, do a little research. So check out that website, catholic.com. It has a very easy search function at the top, comes up with a lot of great articles uh, written by Catholic apologists. Again, there's references to the Catholic Encyclopedia, uh, to various dimensions of church history. If you're struggling with the teaching of the Catholic Church, a teaching of Jesus Christ, do a little research this week. Maybe ask a, a trusted friend or colleague, a priest, someone you know who um, is very knowledgeable about the Catholic faith and could explain that to you. And then think about it and pray on it. We believe that all of these teachings, some wild, some mysterious, all hang together in one truth. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, um, can't be parsed out or separated, compartmentalized, 
but all that he said and didn't taught, all that the church continues to hand on is part of that one truth that comes to us from the heart of the Trinity. So let's pray for each other as we continue to research, think about, pray on our faith. We'll take a brief break and then return to read this week's catechism selection, paragraphs 561 through 594. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read this week's selection from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 561 through 594. In brief, the whole of Christ's life was a continual teaching. His silences, his miracles, his gestures, his prayer, his love for people, his special affection for the little and the poor, his acceptance of the total sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of the world, and his resurrection are the actualization of his word and the fulfillment of revelation. Christ's disciples are to conform themselves to him until he is formed in them. For this reason, we, who have been made like to him, who have died with him and risen with him, are taken up into the mysteries of his life until we reign together with him. No one, whether shepherd or wise man, can approach God here below except by kneeling before the manger at Bethlehem and adoring him hidden in the weakness of a newborn child. By his obedience to Mary and Joseph, as well as by his humble work during the long years in Nazareth, Jesus gives us the example of holiness in the daily life of family and work. From the beginning of his public life at his baptism, Jesus is the servant wholly consecrated to the redemptive work that he will accomplish by the baptism of his passion. The temptation in the desert shows Jesus, the humble Messiah, who triumphs over Satan by his total adherence to the plan of salvation willed by the Father. The kingdom of heaven was inaugurated on earth by Christ. This kingdom shone out before men in the word, in the works, and in the presence of Christ. The church is the seed and beginning of this kingdom. Her keys are entrusted to Peter. Christ's transfiguration aims at strengthening the apostles' faith in anticipation of his passion. The ascent onto the high mountain prepares for the ascent to Calvary. Christ, head of the church, manifests what his body contains and radiates in the sacraments, the hope of glory. Jesus went up to Jerusalem voluntarily, knowing well that there he would die a violent death because of the opposition of sinners. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem manifests the coming of the kingdom that the Messiah King, welcomed into his city by children and the humble of heart, is going to accomplish by the Passover of his death and resurrection. Article 4. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The Paschal mystery of Christ's cross and resurrection stands at the center of the good news that the apostles and the church following them are to proclaim to the world. God's saving plan was accomplished once for all by the redemptive death of his son, Jesus Christ. The church remains faithful to the interpretation of all the scriptures that Jesus gave both before and after his Passover. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus' sufferings took their historical, concrete form from the fact that he was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes who handed him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified. Faith can therefore try to examine the circumstances of Jesus' death, faithfully handed on by the Gospels and illuminated by other historical sources, the better to understand the meaning of the redemption. Paragraph 1, Jesus and Israel. 
From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, certain Pharisees and partisans of Herod together with priests and scribes agreed together to destroy him. Because of certain of his acts, expelling demons, forgiving sins, healing on the Sabbath day, his novel interpretation of the precepts of the law regarding purity, and his familiarity with tax collectors and public sinners, some ill-intentioned persons suspected Jesus of demonic possession. He is accused of blasphemy and false prophecy, religious crimes which the law punished with death by stoning. Many of Jesus' deeds and words constituted a sign of contradiction, but more so for the religious authorities in Jerusalem, whom the gospel according to John often calls simply the Jews, than for the ordinary people of God. To be sure, Christ's relations with the Pharisees were not exclusively polemical. Some Pharisees warned him of the danger he was courting. Jesus praises some of them, like the scribe of Mark chapter 12, verse 34, and dines several times at their homes. Jesus endorses some of the teachings imparted by this religious elite of God's people, the resurrection of the dead, certain forms of piety, almsgiving, fasting, and prayer, the custom of addressing God as Father, and the centrality of the commandment to love God and neighbor. In the eyes of many in Israel, Jesus seems to be acting against essential institutions of the chosen people. Submission to the whole of the law and its written commandments, and for the Pharisees in the interpretation of oral tradition. The centrality of the temple at Jerusalem as the holy place where God's presence dwells in a special way. Faith in the one God whose glory no man can share. Jesus and the Law At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus issued a solemn warning in which he presented God's law, given on Sinai during the first covenant, in light of the grace of the new covenant. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and therefore the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, was to fulfill the law by keeping it in its all-embracing detail, according to his own words, down to the least of these commandments. He is, in fact, the only one who could keep it perfectly. On their own admission, the Jews were never able to observe the law in its entirety without violating the least of its precepts. This is why every year on the Day of Atonement, the children of Israel ask God's forgiveness for their transgressions of the law. The law indeed makes up one inseparable whole, and St. James recalls, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This principle of integral observance of the law, not only in letter but in spirit, was dear to the Pharisees. By giving Israel this principle, they had led many Jews of Jesus' time to an extreme religious zeal. This zeal, were it not to lapse into hypocritical casuistry, could only prepare the people for the unprecedented intervention of God through the perfect fulfillment of the law by the only righteous one in place of all sinners. The perfect fulfillment of the law could be the work of none but the divine legislator, born subject to the law in the person of the Son. In Jesus, the law no longer appears engraved on tables of stone, but upon the heart of the servant who becomes a covenant to the people, because he will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus fulfills the law to the point of taking upon himself the curse of the law, incurred by those who do not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them, for his death took place to redeem them from the transgressions under the first covenant. 
The Jewish people and their spiritual leaders viewed Jesus as a rabbi. He often argued within the framework of rabbinical interpretation of the law. Yet Jesus could not help but offend the teachers of the law, for he was not content to propose his interpretation alongside theirs, but taught the people as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In Jesus, the same word of God that had resounded on Mount Sinai to give the written law to Moses made itself heard anew on the Mount of the Beatitudes. Jesus did not abolish the law, but fulfilled it by giving its ultimate interpretation in a divine way. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, but I say to you. With this same divine authority, he disavowed certain human traditions of the Pharisees that were making void the word of God. Going even further, Jesus perfects the dietary law, so important in Jewish daily life, by revealing its pedagogical meaning through divine interpretation. Whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him. Thus he declared all foods clean. What comes out of a man is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. In presenting with divine authority the definitive interpretation of the law, Jesus found himself confronted by certain teachers of the law who did not accept his interpretation of the law, guaranteed though it was by the divine signs that accompanied it. This was the case especially with the Sabbath laws, for he recalls often with rabbinical arguments that the Sabbath rest is not violated by serving God and neighbor, which his own healings did. Jesus and the Temple Like the prophets before him, Jesus expressed the deepest respect for the temple in Jerusalem. It was in the temple that Joseph and Mary presented him 40 days after his birth. At the age of 12, he decided to remain in the temple to remind his parents that he must be about his father's business. He went there each year during his hidden life, at least for Passover. His public ministry itself was patterned by his pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the great Jewish feasts. Jesus went up the up to the temple as the privileged place of encounter with God. For him, the temple was the dwelling of his father, a house of prayer, and he was angered that its outer court had become a place of commerce. He drove merchants out of it because of jealous love for his father. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. After his resurrection, his apostles retained their reverence for the temple. On the threshold of his passion, Jesus announced the coming destruction of this splendid building, of which there would not remain one stone upon another. By doing this, he announced the sign of the last days, which were to begin with his own Passover. But this prophecy would be distorted in its telling by false witnesses during his interrogation at the high priest's house and would be thrown back at him as an insult when he was nailed to the cross. Far from having been hostile to the temple, where he gave the essential part of his teaching, Jesus was willing to pay the temple tax, associating with him Peter, whom he had just made the foundation of his future church. He even identified himself with the temple by presenting himself as God's definitive dwelling place among men. Therefore, his being put to bodily death presaged the destruction of the temple, which would manifest the dawning of a new age in the history of salvation. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus and Israel's faith in the one God and Savior. If the law and the Jerusalem temple could be occasions of opposition to Jesus by Israel's religious authorities, his role in the redemption of sins, the divine work par excellence, was the true stumbling block for them. Jesus scandalized the Pharisees by eating with tax collectors and sinners as familiarly as with themselves. Against those among them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, Jesus affirmed, 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He went further by proclaiming before the Pharisees that since sin is universal, those who pretend not to need salvation are blind to themselves. Jesus gave scandal above all when he identified his merciful contact towards sinners with God's own attitude towards them. He went so far as to hint that by sharing the table of sinners, he was admitting them to the messianic banquet. But it was most especially by forgiving sins that Jesus placed the religious authorities of Israel on the horns of a dilemma. Were they not entitled to demand and consternation, who can forgive sins but God alone? By forgiving sins, Jesus either is blaspheming as a man who made himself God's equal or is speaking the truth, and his person really does make present and reveal God's name. Only the the divine identity of Jesus' person can justify so absolute a claim as, He who is not with me is against me, and his saying that there was in him something greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, something greater than the temple, his reminder that David had called the Messiah his Lord, and his affirmations before Abraham was, I am, and even I and the Father are one. Jesus asked the religious authorities of Jerusalem to believe in him because of the Father's works which he accomplished. But such an act of faith must go through a mysterious death to self, for a new birth from above under the influence of divine grace. Such a demand for conversion in the face of so surprising a fulfillment of the promises allows one to understand the Sanhedrin's tragic misunderstanding of Jesus. They judge that he deserved the death sentence as a blasphemer. The members of the Sanhedrin were thus acting at the same time out of ignorance and the hardness of their unbelief. In brief, Jesus did not abolish the law of Sinai, but rather fulfilled it with such perfection that he revealed its ultimate meaning and redeemed the transgressions against it. Jesus venerated the temple by going up to it for the Jewish feasts of pilgrimage, and with a jealous love he loved his dwelling place of God among men. The temple prefigures his own mystery. When he announces its destruction, it is as a manifestation of his own execution and of the entry into a new age in the history of salvation, when his body would be the definitive temple. Jesus performed acts such as pardoning sins that manifested him to be the Savior God himself. Certain Jews who did not recognize God made man saw in him only a man who made himself God and judged him as a blasphemer. This brings us to the end of our episode of Catholic Light. Thanks so much for joining me for another week. In the week ahead, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And as you think over the teachings of Jesus Christ, the teachings of the Catholic Church, entrusted to her by Jesus Christ, please share what teachings uh, serve as stumbling blocks or teachings that are a little hard to wrap our heads around, a little hard to maybe explain to others, a little hard to, to put into practice in our own lives. And we'll see if we can come up with some good explanations and answers. So I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.